You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Triple R's Radio Therapy, your Sunday morning program about all things medical and mental health. I'm Dr Anabolics. Well, we don't know the final outcome of the election yet, but I just wanted to start today a little bit differently with a small thank you, thank, a small thank you rant to a group of people who I think are unsung heroes, and that's the Australian Electoral Commission. This independent body of people carry out their mandate to support the franchise, and that's their mandate, to support the franchise, every three years without fault. Whether you vote blue, red, green, yellow or orange, we can all say that we want the same result from any election, an accurate count. And we get it every three years. Uh, Quietly, thoroughly, efficiently, without any hint of corruption or political interference. You don't have to go far around the world to see that this is a rare and wonderful thing. In many countries, violence, intimidation and threats mark any election and the results are always sus. But our AEC goes to extraordinary lengths to be transparent and fair. I've seen electoral officers pursue individuals in old people's homes, in prisons and in homeless shelters to ensure they have a chance to vote. In Australia, if you want to vote, you can. And although we take it for granted, it's a glorious, glorious thing that we should appreciate and treasure. The worst thing that can happen at one of our polling booths is to run out of sausages. So I'm very grateful this morning to live in Oz and take part in our political process without fear. So I'm just sending a big thank you to the AEC and all the workers and volunteers who make that possible. So, when we come back, we're going to meet two very interesting guests. We'll be looking at the possibility of drug treatment rather than punishment, and we're going to meet a doctor who is also a magician. Stay with us. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Well, we've got Dr SK with us this morning. How are you, SK? I'm good, Anabolic. Still in a state of shock after last night somewhat. I, I don't know how you spent the night, but I sort of stayed tuned to the election coverage until about 11 o'clock, at which point I bailed and, mm. without a trace of irony, sat down to watch a downloaded episode of Fear the Walking Dead. <laughs> 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 I tuned back in at 12 o'clock and, uh, and not, not much had changed. I haven't caught the news this morning, actually. Do we know yet whether we've got a result or is it going to be like Tuesday before we know? Oh, I was, I was listening to a news radio station as I drove in and uh, apparently it's sort of tied at the moment but there's a number of seats that are undecided and uh, you know Labor's ahead in a proportion of them but we're not likely to know until counting resumes on Tuesday at the earliest I think and the Senate of course is going to be a mess regardless of which way the pennies fall. Wow. Well you had some catch up too you said you wanted to bring in? Yeah just a bit of a in the guise of a public health warning somewhat I'll, I'll get round to what, why that's the case shortly but uh, for reasons I won't go into my, my radio's uh, been stuck on a different station for much of the week and I've uh, been listening to commercial FM radio and uh, I won't mention the name of the station that I've been listening to, you know, lest we generate a complaint, but uh, (coughs) suffice to say that it's a station that's best known for football and uh, misogyny. And... You know, when you when you listen to a station for a while, you get a sense for the sort of people who are likely to be listening, and you can get a sense for that both from the topics that the presenters raise and for the advertising content that uh, seems to be targeted towards the, the listening demographic. Yeah. And to get, to get a sense of the sort of demographic who are tuning into this particular radio station, their talkback topics over the last uh, three weeks or so have, have literally been getting listeners to ring in and tell their favourite story about bacon, uh, to ring in and talk about circumstances where they may have eaten dog 
and yeah, and okay. also you know to get people to ring in and talk about their experiences with functional alcoholism so you're getting a sense for okay. the sort of yep. listener of, mm-hmm. of this particular radio station and their advertising tells a story as well you know you listen to triple r's advertising such as it is and it's you know, advertising about you know socially based justice organizations and you know businesses that might be advertising their deconstructed lattes but <laughs> this, this particular radio station there's a lot of ads that are targeted towards tradies there's a lot of ads that are targeted towards uh, small business owners you know office works and so forth but also you know sp- spread amongst that there's the odd ad that seems to be recruiting uh, participants to take part in medical experiments. <laughs> you know, Monash University is running a study on a particular drug. If you want to be reimbursed up to $1,000 for your time, you know, come along and be injected with a variety of substances. And, <laughs> and again, on, on this particular station, and bearing in mind that the demographics of the people that they're obviously targeting, they're also advertising for sperm donors. And this is where the public health warning comes in because, you know, there's a shortage of sperm sperm donors in Victoria and Australia and it's it's a worthy thing we should be supporting it but for those who are attempting to conceive just a word of warning that this is the particularly (laughs) shallow end of the gene pool that they seem to be trawling to take uh, the sperm donations forward into the 21st century anabolics that's that's worth remembering okay (laughs) I I won't ask which radio station that was probably most people can work it out but not triple R that's for sure absolutely no three triple Okay, well, we're going to start this morning by I'm going to introduce to you our first guest, who is Mr. Greg Denham. And how welcome, Greg. Oh, thank you. Now, you I, I struck me as a fascinating person when I met you because your background is one. I met you actually at, at a um, support don't punish rally, uh, which is a, a, gr- a group uh, pushing forward the notion of providing men- uh, medical care for people who are addicted to uh, drugs and alcohol rather than to putting them in jail, which is a, a, a cause that I feel very strongly about too. And you come from a policing background, in fact, and you're not alone. You come from a group called uh, uh, LEAP, which stands for uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that organisation? Because it sounds fascinating to me. This is people on the ground, isn't it? Well, it is. It's um, an organisation that started about 15 years ago in the United States and uh, a number of police over there got together and said, look, you know, this war on drugs, this prohibition, you know, Nick Nixon's sort of war on drugs rant that he went on in the early 70s isn't, isn't you know, we're not, we're not winning this war. In fact, it's getting worse. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there has been over the last what, 40 or so years, particularly in the United States up until recently, you know, a focus around increased penalties, increased um, people in jail, number of people in jail, and um, greater police powers. And, uh, you know, the police that got together said, look, this isn't working, we need to do something else about this. And uh, they said, look, let's form an organisation called LEAP. And it, it grew and grew and grew. And now there's uh, UK speakers, there's myself, there's others in Canada. And so it's slowly spreading, I guess, throughout the world um, that, you know, the war on drugs has failed and we need to take other approaches. And I mean, interesting to me because I used to work down in St Kilda a bit in a, in a drug and alcohol facility. And um, I used to meet a lot of uh, policemen down there who would privately say the same thing. You know, they, they're out, you know, arresting people. They'd say to me frequently, this is, this is crap. You know, this is, I, I don't want to put him in jail. I he should be in treatment. So well, it's a widely held view, I think, amongst a lot of people. I think a lot of police 
think this, um, unfortunately, they're held by government policy, which means they can't, um, you know, be, be, be vocal about um, being in opposition to, to government policy, which is very much about, you know, in, in the case um, at the moment, a law and order approach. <laughs> but we must also um, understand that, you know, the war on drugs has also provided a means for... Um, a number of people in the community uh, who are involved in a lot of other criminal activity to have money which is put towards other criminal behaviour. And uh, we know, for example, that you know there are many systems, government systems throughout the world, which which rely on drug money. So the, the connectedness between the people on the street and what happens at high levels, particularly the banking system, it, you know, is quite real. And uh, you know, drug money—it's it's worth billions, four hundred billion dollars each year um, in the United States alone. And that's how much they spend on the, the war on drugs. So, <laughs> in terms of cost of cost effectiveness, it's not getting anywhere. What what do you mean by the connection at high levels? What do specifically are you referring to there? Do you mean money that's going corruption. into banks and putting in bank well, Corruption. Yeah, it's, it's about corruption and corruption happens at high level and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the money that flows through from the streets, from the from the dealers from the people at the next level uh, goes eventually to people who are very well connected but, mm-hmm. but, are, but are one step removed I guess, uh, arm's length from the whole issue and that money ends up going into the banking system but they also do other unlawful activity with it like people trafficking, weapons um, influencing government decisions so you know, drug money Money is um, very, very influential, very powerful. Well, we shouldn't be surprised about this, really, when we've seen it in our lifetime, we, you know, early in, in a living memory in America when we had alcohol prohibition. These are the same things that happened at all levels of government in Chicago and New York, weren't they? We've, we've seen how that uh, fosters illegal trade and illegal illegal connections and high-level corruption. Didn't we see that same Absolutely. thing? Absolutely. And we saw also, too, that uh, despite the fact that some people actually stopped drinking, um, the harms from alcohol got worse because... Um, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, alcohol being produced, mm. um, which was very, very harmful, very, very damaging. Mm. Mm. So, you know, instead of, um, for example, um, beer being, being produced, mm. uh, the uh, stills produced sort of very, very, um, you know, harmful wood alcohol and that type of stuff. So, which, you know, people are going blind and liver disease, etc. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, it is. It's, it's um, a, a, a very difficult Situation and prohibition um, in the states during the twenties um, around alcohol uh, showed us that uh, you know that, that there are harmful aspects of that. But what one thing we forget is that the United States wanted to stop all non-medical and scientific use of of substances. So it wasn't just about alcohol. Uh, in 1914, the Harrison Act in the United States basically stopped any non-medical use of drugs. And in the end, they actually stopped um, the medical use of drugs. Doctors who were prescribing <coughs> for um, people who were dependent on um, heroin or cocaine, they ended, up, they ended up in jail in the States. So, you know, it's not, it wasn't just about alcohol. Greg, you're sort of making a, a big call with the uh, the link between drug money and corruption at very high levels. Can I can I just explore that with you? I mean, uh, I, I don't doubt that uh, our system is corrupt and that uh, people take money for a variety of uh, reasons when when they enter public office. But uh, if if it's the case that uh, powerful vested interests benefit from drug money like this, why are those same powerful vested interests pursuing a drug policy that uh, continues to emphasise this war on drugs? How, how can those two realities be reconciled well i think we need to be aware that in in countries where you know this is a significant issue i'm not necessarily saying it's the case here but certainly if you look at um for example uh countries in in particularly developing countries um you know you you've got systems which are um you know you've got you've got systems where you know 
people who are involved in the drug market actually pay people in, in government to make certain decisions. And it's to their benefit to um, ensure that the, the prohibition of drugs may, is maintained because, um, you know, if um, you had a legalised system, for example, that would change altogether because then you'd have drugs which are available through a system um, of controlled availability so that the, the illicit market would go and so therefore you don't get the... the the benefit um, of the, the cash economy, for example, which helps um, to feed certain, you know, certain government decisions or part of government decisions. So, so, so the point about corruption was made primarily in res- in relation to the country of origin, the drug manufacturing well, that's countries, right. because there's. <coughs> in many ways, a, a huge economy underlying the production of these illicit substances. Yeah. yeah. If you look at Afghanistan, you look at Myanmar, you look at countries in South America, that's where the major issues are around the production of drugs. And for places like Mexico, where the production of cocaine is you know, such a, a prominent part of the a huge number of murders and all the terrible corruption, but, and yet the customers mostly are from the United States. So it's a, there, there is connection between these organised, you know, the countries through this trade that um, is often not uh, really put in the fore forefront isn't it now portugal went a different way about 10 years ago didn't they what what happened in portugal they decided to decriminalize some level of uh, of most drugs use that's right um in 2001 um just after there was a significant change of government uh the uh, portuguese said look uh, we can't win this war on drugs. Let's let's look at it a different way. So they uh, they looked at the evidence, which which was quite startling in terms of drug policy, mm. because you now often we we forget that there should be an evidence base to all policy, um, but we don't often get that. And so they decriminalised all drug use. So personal use and possession of drugs is now decriminalised. So instead of the police arresting you and putting you before a court, they go before a panel, a dissuasion panel. Mm. And most people that go before the panel uh, basically are told, well, you know, you shouldn't be using drugs. There could be some harmful aspects to it. Um, don't do it again. Because um, uh, the, the majority of people that use illicit drugs don't necessarily have a problem with their drug use mm-hmm. and this is this is the thing that we often forget is yes. that you know we hear about you know the ice addict who's you know involved in a very violent situation or the heroin you know dependent person who overdoses but there are there are you know a lot of people out there who use illicit drugs that don't actually have problems with their drug use so portugal decided that they would you know decriminalize all drug use all of the money that was going into the criminal justice system went into education and treatment and and they found it to be you know very beneficial you know overdose rates have dropped the transmission of hiv and other bloodborne viruses has dropped um and their education systems are much better mind you they did have they were in a very difficult situation economically at that time so it made a lot of sense to take that money out of the policing and criminal justice system and put it into education and treatment and and health well this has become known as justice reinvestment hasn't it this is the the phrase the other place where this has been a a prominent experiment if you like is in texas of all places um one of the um uh, senators in texas uh decided that um he he was given the task of running the jails about 10 years ago and he was told by his governor that he wasn't going to get another penny for prison beds because there were too many and it was costing the state a fortune um and he was this is a right wing hard right republican um senator and uh he he decided that he would do the same thing he looked at the evidence and he worked out that this was not working and he said he and he he gave the magistrates of the courts the power of um filling the drug beds he put the money some money into drug beds expanded the drug um and treatment beds and he said i'm going to give you the magistrate uh, the entrance power to these beds not not the um not to prison but in, you can have either 
And so they've actually had people, the magistrates, saying to people who are convicted or charged with drug crimes, you can do one or the other. You can go here for six months or you can go to prison for six months. What do you want to do? And they've had an enormous shift in people going into treatment, um, still under the threat of um, going back to jail if things go off, a bit like our drug courts. Uh, but the recidivism rate has gone down to about 20%. Ours is about 45 in Australia. And they've had, they've had no new beds, no new jail beds built, and their youth crime has gone down remarkably. So this is a, this is from the hard right wing of the Republican Party, <laughs> and he said nobody was more surprised than I was. I heard him talk. He said no one was more surprised than I was. So there there are some international experiments with this that that would at least give us hope that maybe a different approach might be worth pursuing. What do you reckon would be the best approach for Australia weighing it up? Have you had any thoughts about what do you reckon would be a good way to go? Look, I think that example is a very good one and we are approaching it from that perspective during, in the criminal justice system here through therapeutic jurisprudence, which means that every every person or every, I guess, agency or group connected to the criminal justice system does have, um, I guess, some avenues or some space to look at ways in which people can get into treatment. Um, you're not going to get everybody that goes into treatment stopping their drug use when they get out because... Mm. You know, as we know, a person has to want to change, you know, before mm. they change. So, but certainly they, the notion that um, the criminal justice system can intervene in the person's life in terms of their drug use um, is, is, a, is a very good, um, you know, principle to adopt. But we also know too that, you know, Drugs are just one component of a person's life mm. and often that mm. drug use is functional. Pe mm. People often use drugs and can use drugs even problematically because they, there's an issue in their life or issues in their life which are leading to that drug use. So mm. we often focus on the drug but we should be focusing on the person. What mm. is it that drives that person's um, dependency and, mm. and in some cases chronically dysfunctional mm. drug use? So if a person comes from uh, a dysfunctional family, if there's a, a history of abuse, if they're homeless, if they don't have a problem education if they can't get employment um you know these are the issues that we need to be dealing with and and the criminal justice system is really in a very good position to be able to intervene on those issues and deal with those issues mm. now you're not going to um you're not going to fix everyone's life mm. you know but but if you stop someone going into jail you you're saving 120 130 a year that's right by doing that so Greg, you've made the point that uh, we're starting to see some promising moves in this direction locally with things like drug courts coming into play, but uh, I, I gather there's a, a deeper change that needs to occur uh, across the system, you know, for, for this idea to really take traction and, and make a, a significant difference. How close do you think that this sort of approach is to getting a, a broader audience in Australia and what are the, the barriers to us moving further down that track? Well, I think one of the things we need to do is we need to ch change the policy narrative around this. Um, too much of it is, uh, is focused around, too much of the, of the discussion is focused around uh, law and order um, and uh, punishment um, and also, you know, in some cases retribution, you know, and the way in which we see people who use drugs and, and, and are drug dependent, you know, we still use um, terminology, uh, stereotypical terminology like, you know, junkies and, and losers and all of this type of thing. So we need some leadership, we need some policy narrative change we need to have a considered discussion in the community about this we need to move away from the war on drugs rhetoric and propaganda we need to move to a situation where we can have an open uh, discussion about it we had it during the late 90s when we had a lot of heroin around and a lot of people were overdosing and dying from heroin we still have over 400 people in the state dying each year from from drug use but we don't have that um open policy discussion about that that we used to and uh i think part of that is because it's um 
because it's not as open as it was during the late 90s when we had that that massive problem with heroin but but we still need to um have this conversation and uh you know the police have said we can't arrest their way out of this which is true but we also need some policy support for that i mean having having just uh, enjoyed the election campaign for the last uh, eight weeks this got no airplay at all from what i can gather probably because law and order is seen very much as a state issue but when the various state elections come around does any particular side of politics latch onto these ideas and pursue them with any vigor i think um i think all sides um buy into the debate from time to time and uh you know it, it's it's a very difficult area to sort of negotiate your way around when it comes to politics because um you know we have as i said had this tradition of seeing illicit drug use as as you know a way in which we can sort of generate support for you know harsher penalties etc which the community often wants to hear this is this is the difficulty that we have we still have this kind of perception within the community that drugs are damaging and harmful which they can be in some circumstances but um i think in terms of uh what what's happened recently particularly in victoria is that there's an there's a parliamentary inquiry run by uh fiona Patton from the sex party which um is now uh, going ahead and there's um, a lot of people looking forward to actually making submissions into that mm-hmm. and um, that should generate some interest and some policy discussion around um, this issue because I don't think it really, it doesn't really sit on either side of politics, left or right mm-hmm. it, it, it can actually um, be, um, you know um, the same views can happen on both sides of politics when it comes However, to However, I, re- I reckon it'll need to be bipartisan support to get it changed. I reckon I can't see it. it could e- it's an easily wedged uh, argument. I think that's one thing. We do need to have both sides of politics. I think it was helped by Ken Lay's comments uh, last year when he said he's come out um, you know, cautiously in response to some new conversation around this by saying that we can't arrest our way out of this problem. We've got to stop thinking about us arresting our way out of the problem. And it's just, I think it's very true. So... Um, I'm going to introduce Fionn now, our next guest, who's got something to ask about this. Yeah, I, I think I just kind of had to chime in. I think you, you made, it, Sally made a really good point earlier. Um, I guess we're still kind of talking about this, how the hard right in Texas um, ultimately saw the light and uh, and, and realised that harm minimisation is the, is the way to go. And I think a really key part of the problem is going to be to depoliticise the concept of harm minimisation um, because it's very easy to fall into the... Uh, fall into the trappings of uh, turning this whole addiction issue into this very typical kind of libertarian versus authoritarian kind of thing about whose responsibility it is. But uh, I think we have to kind of acknowledge the practicalities of it. And I think both sides of the debate can really do that and just go, well, the first step is to just clean up, you know, the, the worst of the, of the kind of problems. And if, if just that first step can be viewed... Um, as a kind of apolitical kind of step, and then then maybe we can have the other kind of debates, and maybe that's the first way to go about these things. One of the uh, issues that has kind of generated a lot of change, particularly in the United States, has been the economic situation. And if you look at, for example, the legalisation of uh, cannabis in some states, that's generating a lot of um, taxes. Mm. Yes, and uh, and the economic argument, um, even though we're talking about people's lives here, the economic argument is very strong at the moment. Mm. And, the Colorado and government's very happy. <laughs> very, very happy. You know, and some research recently um, indicated that the level of cannabis use amongst young people has actually fallen as well. So, you know, um, when when it comes to um, particularly economics at the moment, if you can find somewhere or some means to to generate income, then it's going to be looked at, even if it is 
illicit drugs mm-hmm. cannabis okay it's a start but um maybe down the track we can look at other other drugs such as cocaine for example well i think you both make really interesting points there because the two things you're talking about there the economic benefits potentially to the state by legalizing uh, making these things uh under, under you know supervision and gaining taxes plus the harm minimization they're areas that aren't too controversial in fact most people like having more money in your state and most people are okay with the idea of harm minimization which is why that's one of the you know, policy aspects that's gained most traction, I think, in, in Australia and Victoria. The idea of, of course, we need to think about getting people to use clean needles. And I, I had the most um, interesting uh, experience when I was down at the uh, needle, uh, needle and Syringe Exchange in St Kilda a few years ago, uh, just sitting there for a day watching who was coming in. And uh, I, I had, my, had my eyes opened, um, which I'm sure is old news to you, uh, Greg, but I had my eyes opened with the, the people walking in with great big containers of used needles and picking up a new container of clean needles and going away. A handful of those people through the day would be people who were very downtrodden in a very bad place and in a serious addiction, but a whole lot came up in expensive cars and expensive suits and um, and uh, looking like they were off to work in the morning. It's, it may, there are a lot of people in our society who are using illicit drugs functionally and who are minimising their harm and, you know, it's a very, very different world to what you might imagine. That was an eye-opener for me. Well, that's right. And I also work work in a needle exchange um, from time to time and I couldn't agree more, mm. you know, that the stereotypical um, kind of dysfunctional, chaotic injecting drug user that's often portrayed in the media um, is, is in many respects not, not necessarily the norm. In fact, I would say argue quite strongly that it's not the norm, that mm. there are thousands of people out there who use... Um, illicit drugs and inject them as well mm-hmm. um and and they live you know whatever a normal life is you know without um committing crime without you know um experiencing the more harmful aspects of, of, that that comes as a result of uh, illicit drug use and my argument is is that it's not necessarily the drugs that are harmful it's the policies mm-hmm. That try to control those drugs, which are more harmful than the drugs themselves. Well, I think that's a really good point. And uh, Vion, you're a GP by training, and I think that's the other thing that um, uh, struck me too. That a lot of the GPs working with people on the ground have have worked this out. They've worked it out that people are making decisions about their use, and they and there are decisions. People use drugs for a, a reason, and they decide to, to to use or not to use based on health concerns based on what it's going to do for them and some of the GPs are becoming I think experts in working out how do we encourage people to just keep safe keep healthy, use properly rather than being nags like they, we used to be. Have you found that in your training? Absolutely I find that people tend to respond much better when they're not feeling like they're backed into uh, a corner people can be very intelligent and really look at all the factors that are uh, th- that uh, they need to kind of take into consideration take the, the the best decision and a lot of the time when they're when they're not taking you know, the best decision possible it's uh, there's a lot of things that we may say are kind of happening out of their their control um but it's really only i think when you treat people like adults people you you you, you give you kind of empower them what i find is that people make the best decisions kind of on mass and i think it's really important we, we do that yeah and is it and sorry go ahead Green. Yeah. no i was just going to say in terms of gps um <clears throat> i know it's very difficult for some gps to um 
see see people who are um, the more chaotic injecting drug yeah. users because you know uh, they they can be a bit disruptive and yeah. often they can't access that sort of primary care because um, you know because, because you know issues around their behaviour and one of the things that we would like to see for example is um, more GPs seeing more people particularly in terms of prescribing methadone you know yeah. there are um, you know and the other issue is in terms of dispensing of methadone in terms of pharmacies you know there are a small number of um, providers with a, lo- a large list of sort of um, clients, yes, and yeah. we'd rather see that sort of spread a bit more evenly in the community. Sure, it's yeah. some of the people who I've met who've uh, been prescribers of methadone and suboxone and things like that. Some of the, the best GPs I've ever met. They're just absolute gold standard people who just go out of their way to provide help and care to people who otherwise don't get any care. Greg, I'm, I'm just trying to think a few steps ahead of ourselves here and. Uh, it brings me back to the fact that, you know, undeniably in our society, the two drugs that cause the most harm in terms of unintended health consequences are alcohol and tobacco. Now, I completely accept the point that prohibition does not work. I accept the point that uh, in jurisdictions where use has been decriminalised, such as Portugal, there's a decrease in untoward health consequences in terms of bloodborne virus transmission and so forth. Is there a risk, and has this been borne out in jurisdictions where it's been implemented, that if you do legalise the use of certain substances, an unintended consequence of that would be a rise in the number of people who do become addicted? Because we have seen that with alcohol and tobacco. There's most people in society use alcohol without unintended health consequences but equally there's a large number of people who are addicted and is that the the balance that we have to tread here has has there been a rise for example in portugal in the number of people with addictions as a result of this policy change i don't think there has and they have um decriminalized not legalized drugs Uh, but look that's a really good point and i think this is one of the the issues that we kind of are unsure about when it comes to the, the legalising of drugs. We know, for example, with alcohol, and you point out alcohol, which is, is correct, you know, probably in terms of its broader impact in the community, it's associated with so many different harms, you know, on so many different levels. Um, and we know, for example, that if, if we have a pricing... Um, scheme or, and uh, an availability issue and a marketing issue with alcohol those three aspects really d- you know if you have very cheap alcohol available to a lot of people and it's heavily promoted then that's a recipe for disaster and uh, most of the policy work that goes on around alcohol focuses on those three issues and i certainly would not like to see you know for example um some illicit drugs heavily promoted in that way and available in that way. Uh, but there are some good models which, um, you know, exist in Spain um, in terms of, you know, a little cooperative of people who grow their own cannabis and, you know, you know, sell it amongst themselves uh, or, or, you know, exchange it. So, you know, um, I think it's when you get to the other end of the of the spectrum, when you get to the heroin and, and the crystal meth, that's when you start to get that sort of, well, hang on, what are we doing here? You know, we're, we're going to have heroin available at 7-Eleven type of thing. So, um, you know, I think we need to be very mindful of the, the fact that we need to have some in controls and ensure that, you know, if we did go down that, that track, there would be some, there'd be a lot of accountability uh, in terms of you know, those particular substances, um, but for example, in the UK, you know, in the UK, uh, doctors have been able to prescribe um, heroin for a long time, and you know, the levels of addiction haven't gone up. You know, it's just people who have a dependency on heroin who use um, heroin, and they go to a doctor and they get it prescribed, even though from time to time governments try to crack down on that because you know it sends the wrong message and you know it undermines the anti-drug message. Um, that that system has worked quite well. I must say, though, I also I've never heard any 
anybody from the uh, support don't punish side of things who's ever made the case that decriminalising would lead to ceased use. In fact, what I've heard generally is, is the opposite, that drugs are here to stay. Humans have used drugs uh, since Adam was a boy. Uh, you will There's a wide spectrum of the type of use based on who needs what and who want, wants what kind of buzz. They're here to stay. Rather than fight it like a war and pretend to aim at nothing, no, no drug use, we should aim at harm minimisation and reduced drug use. Uh, even the UN, they, had, they have a, every 10 years they have a drug summit. They had 10 years ago they were talking about the war on drugs and aiming for zero drug use. This year they just had one and said, no, drugs are here to stay, we need to focus on harm reduction. So I think there's a difference in um, what their aims. They're not aiming to stop use, they're aiming to stop harm, I think. And I think the thing that ties in with that is that when people talk about legalising uh, drug use, all, all we're really saying is we're not saying do more, we're just instituting another form of control, with his, which is regulation. And that is just a different way of controlling or helping control people's use. And it's just a far more useful method uh, now that we know that the criminalising is, is kind of failed. So we're not, we're not going to go back to the situation uh, 120 years ago when Coca-Cola actually contained cocaine, <laughs> for example, as an additive, you know, Coke adds life in, in many ways. So a, a regulated product but not something that's going to be able to be added to foodstuffs and, and things in that way. That, that would be clearly wrong. We can still maintain control on a, on a legislative yeah. basis. That's right. Well, Greg, are you able to stay with us for the rest of the show? Can sure. You yeah, fantastic. Thank you. All right, well, that's just fascinating to hear. I could talk to you for hours.